KZSU-FM Stanford, welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, uh, and this year a visiting research collaborator at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. Today I'm very excited to have on what is a un rather unusual array uh, of guests because normally I do one-on-one -on -one interviews uh, which work well. Uh, I sometimes do two people on the phone, but rarely do I have three, and I could have had even four today. But I've got three guests today, uh, the co-editors of the book, The Turn to Infrastructure in Internet Governance. Uh, joining us today are three of those four editors, Francesca Muziani, uh, Derek Cogburn, and Laura Denardis. Not joining us today, unfortunately, uh, is the fourth editor, Nanette Levinson. Uh, this quarter on Hearsay Culture Schedule uh, has been heavily focused on what uh, are best thought of as these underlying procedural structural issues that in many ways drive all of the substantive outcomes of whatever it is we're talking about. Uh, last week we had Michael Shudson from Columbia on talking about the right to know. Of course, the previous week Larry Lessig was on for the 10th anniversary show talking about campaign finance, a heavy procedural issue. And today we're going to talk about an issue which is critically important to how Internet and really communication technologies operate, but is one that rarely gets the attention it deserves. In the book, The Turn to Infrastructure and Internet Governance, uh, Francesca, Derek, Laura, and Nanette, uh, along with many other contributors, take a close look at these very fundamental questions about how it is that the Internet is governed itself and what it looks like today in Internet governance. Now, this is an issue which one could dismiss as being very much inside baseball and in the weeds. And in fact, this discussion could easily go in that direction. However, the broader implications of internet governance issues ranges from everything from who gets to decide where the internet is accessed to who gets to decide what domain names will be allowed or not, who gets to decide where in fact information can be accessed and can't. And so in that sense, this is very much a fundamental question of governance itself. And the turn to infrastructure focuses on these very technical but important issues with regard to how that structure exists. Uh, we have had on the show over the last several years uh, people like Mary Wong, who's now at ICANN, uh, of course, Laura was on about six years ago talking about one of her previous works in this very area. Uh, we were focusing on the domain name system, which we're going to talk about uh, today as well. But we're going to dig deeper because of the range of wonderful guests we have today to focus on not just the structural issues, but particularly because the editors of the textbook made contributions in one of the areas in particular, which is this question of the politics of Internet infrastructure and how that works. We're going to take a deep dive into those areas. Very importantly, the way the book is structured, but we're not going to focus as much on it, although will come up, there is an entire part on IP rights enforcement, and you might say, wait a minute, Levine, are you telling me you're not going to discuss IP on hearsay culture? And my response today is, yes, indeed, I am not going to focus there. Why? Because we have three guests who I think can talk about issues which don't get that kind of attention, that is, IP gets more attention, and that's where I think we should focus today. Uh, and there is also a chapter, which we will have a little bit of this, I think, uh, focusing on infrastructure.
structure as a tool for surveillance, privacy, and censorship. And that's an area that Laura's written about as well. I think Derek's written about that space as well. Indeed, I think Francesca has too. But we're going to dig in, I think, on this broader question of the very democracy or lack thereof that governs the internet today. So we're going to dig in that way. Uh, and by way of brief introduction, I'll actually ask the guests uh, to talk about their backgrounds in a little more detail. Uh, Francesca Muziani is a researcher with the French National Center for Scientific Research, which is affiliated with the Institute for Communication Sciences. She's also an associate researcher at the Center for the Sociology of Innovation um, and in Paris. Uh, her research focuses on internet governance. Uh, she is a former Yahoo fellow in residence at Georgetown. Uh, she's received awards for her work, and she is joining us, as all the guests are today, via Skype. Uh, Laura Denardis, uh, for Hearsay Culture is remembering uh, back a few years, is a scholar of Internet architecture and governance and a professor in the School of Communications at American University in Washington. Uh, she was previously on the show discussing her work on Internet governance. Uh, her expertise has been featured in many uh, media outlets, uh, uh, she's an affiliate fellow of the Yale Law School Information Society Project, which is where I met Laura. Uh, she previously served as its executive director. Uh, I am a huge fan of Yale ISP. Uh, Laura's uh, successors, people like Margot Kaminsky uh, and others, have done wonderful work in this space. Uh, she holds an A.B. in engineering science from Dartmouth, a master's uh, from Cornell University, where I graduated from, although I was an ILR grad, uh, and a Ph.D. in science and technology from Virginia Tech. Uh, also, and rounding out today. Uh, Derek Cogburn is a pioneer in the study of information communication technologies and is an associate professor in the School of International Service at American University. Uh, he also serves as executive director of the Institute on Disability and Public Policy and the Collaboration Laboratory. Uh, he is a founding steering committee member of the Global Internet Governance Academic Network and its former vice chair. Uh, he holds other professional titles as well. He is a heavily uh, published author uh, and in fact in 19 he helped to found the Global Information Infrastructure Commission and became its executive director of its spinoff GIIC Africa. Again, not joining us today uh, is American University's Nanette Levinson. Um, I have also... I'm a huge fan of Americans' work in international trade, having worked professionally uh, with many folks uh, at American University Law School, and so I'm always excited to have on scholars from American University. Joining us via Skype today are our three guests. We are recording on April 29th, uh, 2016. Uh, Francesca, Derek, and Laura, thank you for joining us today on Hearsay Culture. Thanks very much, Dave. It's Thanks, great Dave. to great to be back on the show and uh, I first want to congratulate you for a decade on the air really uh, incredible thank you so much yeah I'm, I'm very excited so Laura if you want to start off and kind of I, I know you've been on the show in the past but perhaps you could share a little bit more about your background and uh, Francesca as well you know wh why this book and why now certainly well I'm I'm an engineer first and foremost um, I started out my career doing information technology design and what I learned fairly uh, early on was that how technology is designed affects public policy in many different ways. It affects privacy, it affects our ability to speak, it affects um, how people with disabilities, for example, can get online. So I'm very interested in the politics of the underlying infrastructure. I study it from the standpoint of not only engineering, but also social science and law. You mentioned that I was at Yale Law School for quite a while. Um, affiliated with the Yale Information Society Project. 
Uh, I've been very passionate about the issue of internet governance for quite some time. I've written a number of books on this, including most recently The Global War for Internet Governance. I'm also uh, currently uh, very busy and very involved serving as the director of research for the Global Commission on Internet Governance. So I'm very embroiled in these issues. Uh, what is uh, most interesting to me now is how the internet is going from a communication network to a control network where we have more things connected, more objects connected to the internet than we do people. Uh, wireless heart monitors, home alarm systems, weather sensors, cars, all of these kinds of things. And um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the question of what are the prospects for individual rights and internet freedom in that context. Francesca? Uh, well, first of all, yeah, let me join in congratulations. And uh, I'm really, really so happy to be on, on the show. So. <clears throat> Uh, I'm, a, I'm a tenured research re researcher with the, uh, the National Center for Scientific Research that despite it being labeled as a center is in fact a huge network of research units uh, that parallels universities in France. I say, I say it just because uh, I expect most people on the audience may be unfamiliar with uh, French so academic subtleties. And uh, uh, so I am a scholar of internet governance. Uh, I, uh, I come from a mixed background at the undergraduate level uh, I, um, I studied communication studies and some computer science. Uh, I went on to uh, a master in international law uh, and uh, my PhD is in uh, sociology of technology, so uh, science and technology studies. Uh, and uh, uh, the fil rouge uh, of all this is actually the internet as a, a research subject, uh, in the sense that I went uh, and looked for the disciplinary tools uh, that the internet as a research uh, subject was prompting me to look for. Uh, and this is why I moved from uh, initial uh, studies uh, of uh, internet governance institutions, uh, most notably the Internet Governance Forum, uh, to uh, the study of uh, internet governance architectures and uh, infrastructures. So. Uh, technology as a means uh, of governance more than a subject uh, of governance. And uh, this is actually how this book uh, came about. Because, uh, so two things happened in convergence. Uh, the first one was that uh, I spent a year at Georgetown University as a Yahoo Fellow, as you anticipated. Uh, and uh, uh, the second one was the proximity of the wonderful American University trio that uh, <laughs> you know very well. Uh, and uh, um, in particular, I was extremely extremely interested and I saw a lot of affinities uh, uh, with uh, uh, Laura's work on uh, uh, an infrastructure-based theory of, uh, of internet governance. So this is how the conference uh, that subsequently prompted this book uh, came about. Derek? Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, I join my colleagues in congratulating you. It's a wonderful achievement to, uh, to get to 10 years. <laughs> Um, I've been involved in this kind of work for a very long time. Uh, I've been primarily interested in the role of information and communication technologies for facilitating participation in um, activities that are not localized, so distributed research uh, collaboration, and distributed education and knowledge production, and uh, it led me to a focus on the role of information technology in enabling um, participation in global governance. Um, so uh, I started uh, my work, I'm a political scientist by training, 
focusing on uh, optoelectronics and how the state stimulates research and development in high-technology industries, particularly uh, optoelectronics, and then commercializes uh, those technologies. Uh, and then I've started to focus on telecommunications uh, as a vehicle through which um, uh, information and communications get delivered. And uh, that led me to a focus on the, the contestation for power and knowledge and ideas around um, information and communication uh, technologies and information and communication policy and the disparities in participation in those processes where some voices are far more powerful than others uh, in this process and uh, looking for ways to try to alter uh, that uh, imbalance. Uh, and so um, I focused on uh, telecommunications in South Africa uh, and then looking at how uh, civil society voices and developing country voices could participate in these processes more fully. And so that led me in the mid-90s uh, looking at electronic commerce and debates around electronic commerce and how these voices um, uh, get heard or not heard uh, in those processes. Uh, it led me to a focus on uh, the the uh, preparations for the World Summit on the Information Society and uh, the various deliberative processes for this multi-stakeholder environment that enabled uh, civil society groups to uh, form uh, uh, and organize their participation in those discussions and um, in, in the uh, emerging internet governance debates and the need to privatize and internationalize uh, internet governance and what that meant for participation by groups uh, around the world. Uh, and as Laura said, uh, you know, one of the things that I've focused on for the last uh, seven years or so has also been uh, how persons with disabilities participate in uh, these processes. So um, it's been a, a long time coming to get to this space, and I'm really delighted to, to be here and be able to share some of our work with you and, and with our audiences. That's terrific. Yeah, this you know I, I think the best way to approach this issue, uh, particularly given the, the depth of knowledge here, uh, Francesca, you are you are the lead name here. You're the first name, so therefore uh, you take prime responsibility, as far as I'm concerned, as a, as an interviewer, uh, to, to answer some of these core questions. It's all about you. No, but um, let, let's start right here. Right, infrastructure is a term which is ambiguous. Um, but it's been a focus of hearsay culture going way back. Brett Frischman uh, from Cardozo was one, of, was one of the early guests on the show talking about his works on infrastructure, and it's come up repeatedly over the last 10 years. How do you define infrastructure in the context of this book? So in the context of this book, uh, we have been uh, drawing heavily from uh, science and technology studies approaches to infrastructure. So um, long-term work by uh, notably Jeff Bowker and Susan Lee Starr. And so what is infrastructure? It's, uh, uh, of course, uh, large collections of uh, material stuff that is necessary for human organization, activity, and work. Uh, however, what is interesting uh, about their conception of infrastructure in relation to information technology is that um, infrastructure can include also uh, a number of facilities and services and uh, immaterial stuff such as uh, uh, computational uh, services, uh, data repositories, uh, 
technical architectures. Uh, and uh, so we have sought to uh, consider this large definition of infrastructure uh, in our book. So uh, I would like to, to add something about this, which is that uh, what is very interesting in STS conceptions of infrastructure is that while recognizing that for uh, publics uh, and for like uh, the users, internet users, for example, um, infrastructure exists in the background, is quite invisible and uh, most frequently taken for granted. Uh, for the scholar, it is a very good methodological opportunity to bring to the foreground uh, tensions, uh, formation uh, and the dissolution of alliances uh, and, uh, and the like. So let me ask you, Laura. So you know, and this is this is lawyerly kind of stuff because now I'm asking the words to be defined, but it's essential here. So so you refer the title of the book refers to the turn to infrastructure in internet governance. Before we even get into uh, the discussion of governance itself, uh, you know, infrastructure as as Francesca defined it, of course, has been a focus of internet governance for the since the internet was launched as a commercial sense. There's always been focus on right what it is that we're doing with the architecture from packets to the DNS system and so forth what is the turn to which you refer certainly well when we access the internet we really don't see very much of the infrastructure as Francesca said it's invisible uh, we draw as, as professors we're always drawing the internet as a cloud and obviously that's completely ridiculous because it um, includes so much behind the scenes, fiber optic cables, the domain name system that translates between internet addresses and uh, between names. You know, there's, there's a lot happening behind the scenes. And what we address in our book is what we view as a destabilizing trend in internet governance. And that is how the infrastructure of the internet, mainly the unseen infrastructure, is being co-opted for purposes that have absolutely nothing to do with keeping the internet operational. So already, the functions and tasks of internet governance are political and they make public interest decisions, but we also see this co-opting, this recognition that infrastructure can be used for many things. There's a long history of this, of course. Uh, no better example than the Egyptian government turning to uh, private interconnection systems to cut off the internet. We also um, hear a lot about how governments use denial of service attacks to disrupt um, dissident voices, disrupt alternative media. And you said not to discuss intellectual property, but I have to here. <laughs> oh, no, you don't, yeah, I just, I'm just that. not going to, but feel free. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, law enforcement and large media content companies um, use infrastructure points of control to cut off access to those engaging in piracy. But what we're suggesting is that we have to extend this concept concept of uh, all those things maybe could be called governance by infrastructure to the phenomenon of governance by tampering with internet infrastructure. So in other words, uh, imposing technical or statutory requirements to modify the actual design of the internet or, or the internet's architecture, if you will, for purposes completely extraneous to keeping the internet operational. And we give a number of examples in our book. So, Derek, let me ask you before we before we get into this plumbing idea um, with regard to infrastructure, uh, two more terms to define: civil society and stakeholder, which are essential in this governance structure that we're going to talk about. 
Right. Well, we can talk about stakeholder and an even more cumbersome word of multi-stakeholder or multi-stakeholderism really gets us into uh, a space that is critical to understanding the Internet governance uh, ecosystem. So if we think about governance, we think about the participation of the governed in the process of that government or governance. Um, so the you know idea of democratic participation and one of the things that happens as um, the internet has become more pervasive in our lives uh, in how we live how we work how we play um, more and more people are being drawn into uh, these processes they're using the internet they're starting to see um, their own preferences for certain uh, policy Uh, developments and uh, policy directions and you have more and more of these uh, voices that are clamoring to participate and when we look at the processes of um, the internet uh, governance it goes back to broader conceptions of uh, how do you involve uh, citizens or non-state actors in global governance processes so the UN has been struggling with uh, inclusion of voices uh, back to its its founding. So we had United Nations associations that tried to figure out how to get non-state actors uh, involved. We had the major groups framework that came out of the Millennium uh, framework where certain major groups were involved in these uh, different kinds of, uh, of, of UN processes. Uh, and then we had the World Summit on the Information Society, which was explicitly multi-stakeholder. So when the General Assembly resolution authorizing the creation of the WISIS was adopted, it included uh, governments, private sector, and civil society as relatively co-equal actors in this process. And so that meant when the World Summit on the Information Society, or WISIS, um, was developed, we had... Um, Uh, civil society actors, non-state actors of various uh, groups of um, uh, individual citizens and organizations could participate in the process by registering themselves, just registering on their own. They didn't have to try to get on a government delegation to be able to go to uh, the WISIS summit. And so within this uh, UN processes, we had this multi-stakeholder uh, uh, um, participation evolving with the idea that the knowledge and expertise of these uh, non-state actors would be able to enhance the discussions and ultimately the decisions that were being made. Now, outside of the UN processes, we had similar multi-stakeholderism happening. So when the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers was uh, developed, it was seen um, as an experiment in global multi-stakeholder governance for the internet. Um, It was uh, in response to the need to privatize and internationalize these governance functions away from um, the kind of arm's length governance that the U.S. government had. And so ICANN had this um, multi-stakeholder process. You had um, individual uh, citizens who could participate in ICANN, but you also had the technical community and various other kinds of actors. So when we think about civil society and multi-stakeholder global governance, we're talking about these non-state actors being able to have um, an active role in the process of decision-making and enforcement uh, of those issues. We're chatting with Francesca Muziani, Derek Cogburn, and Laura DeNardis 
uh, co-editors along with Nanette Levinson of the Turn to Infrastructure in Internet Governance on KZSUFM Stanford. Um, so, Francesca, let me ask you before we kind of get into some of these uh, more specific topics. And Derek has already alluded to it a bit, but but for those listeners that don't focus on internet governance per se, uh, broadly speaking, and I know that this is a question you could take the rest of the show to answer, uh, but generally, how is the internet governed today? Okay, so uh, the definition of uh, uh, internet governance, I would argue, has uh, uh, evolved over the over the course of time, uh, and uh, so uh, have the inclusion of uh, like what is considered uh, internet governance. Uh, but anyway, generally speaking, we could uh, we could say that uh, it is the um, the broader internet governance ecosystem. Uh, includes stuff such as uh, the administration of uh, critical internet resources, uh, the domain of cybersecurity, uh, the, the policy, uh, so the, the, the regulation about uh, what information intermediaries can do and cannot do, uh, intellectual property rights enforcement, so perhaps we'll go back to uh, talking to the architectural based one more specifically, but overall uh, the enforcement of uh, such rights, uh, all the uh, and all the galaxy of uh, uh, internet standardization uh, around uh, like uh, core protocols, for example. So, so let me ask you this, and, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll stay with you for a moment, Francesca, on this point. So, you know, as I, as I alluded to in my introduction, right, when you start getting to structural issues and procedural issues, uh, people often will tune out because it's not viewed as substantive. And you, in fact, have written that the infrastructure issues about which uh, you and your co-authors uh, and co-editors have written uh, is kind of like peer-to-peer uh, the now you know well-known uh, way for individual computers to communicate with each other in the sense that it's the plumbing of the internet and no one cares about plumbing. Um, tell us a bit more about that observation and whether you think in light of in light of the increasing understanding of infrastructure and really kind of the presence of infrastructure in uh, internet users' lives, uh, whether that has changed. Yes, so uh, this uh, caring about the plumbing uh, thing is uh, is actually a quasi citation from uh, uh, Dan Bricklin, uh, the, who uh, was a pioneer of uh, founding a VisiCalc. Uh, so uh, what what had uh, uh, talked to me about this uh, this citation uh, about him was in the early stages of my thesis, which was about uh, decentralized internet services. And uh, so he he was basically saying peer to peer is plumbing, and no one cares about plumbing. Uh, I think that uh, this was very true for. Uh, internet users uh, like appropriation of peer-to-peer in the sense that what it mattered for them was that peer-to-peer was able to get um, musical and video files to them uh, with a, in a very rapid and efficient manner and they didn't really care what was be- below uh, behind the scenes to, uh, to do so. Uh, I think that um, what is happening now in terms of uh, uh, recognizing the role of of infrastructure in internet governance is that we are facing a pretty unique uh, moment because uh, even if it's not become a 
uh, a topic of uh, uh, everyday discussion, uh, it is being increasingly recognized, not just by specialists, but uh, by by citizens, uh, by some citizens or uh, organized in uh, uh, in some kind of form, possibly, but still increasingly recognized. Uh, there, there is, there are things that speak. To, uh, to citizens, for example, uh, the right to be forgotten or uh, some, uh, some censorship measures that are conducted via uh, infrastructure and via intermediaries' decision about this infrastructure. So uh, I, I would say that uh, we are on an upgoing trend in terms of recognition of the plumbing as a governance tool. Uh, if Laura, I could make uh, oh yeah, please, one Derek, uh, ahead, yeah. addition to that that uh, might resonate with some of our your listeners in the United States, and, and Laura, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about this as well. Um, if we look at what happened in, in Flint, Michigan, um, with the plumbing, mm-hmm. um, when people assume that the water that they're getting out of their taps is safe and fine and is what was expected to be there, uh, people don't care about it. It's it's it sort of fades into the background and it just works. But uh, what happened in Flint is when a political decision was made to switch from one water system to another, that then led to the corrosion of the plumbing uh, and increased lead levels in houses. Then there became a concern with the plumbing, and I think in some ways this helps us to understand political decisions or even corporate decisions that can be made about the infrastructure of the internet that can then start to have a tremendous impact on what we consume. Um, I think that that also uh, helps people to understand why this plumbing is important. Laura, do you want to add anything on that? Certainly. Uh, you know, another way to look at this is that the Internet is the infrastructure of all other infrastructures now. There's really no economic sector, uh, no part of social life that is not completely dependent upon the Internet. Uh, when we see something like, um, you know, a cryptographic uh, attack on a healthcare system where suddenly you can't access healthcare records, you see quickly how uh, the infrastructure of the Internet can affect other kinds of sectors. Now, the other aspect of this, not only the importance, is the fact that the arrangements of technical infrastructure, whether it's the plumbing in Flint, Michigan, or the plumbing of the Internet, these arrangements of technical infrastructure are also arrangements of power. Now, what is most interesting about Internet governance, and I call it the Internet governance oxymoron, is that it's not actually carried out by governments in all cases. So you have the administration of names and numbers, for example, by new global institutions like uh, ICANN, one of the many acronyms. You have the establishment of standards by the Internet Engineering Task Force. You have the policy-making role of private industry. There are many different points of power and types of institutions that become involved in this. And then, of course, you also have national governments and um, international agreements. Now, no matter what, we could take any example of within the internet governance ecosystem and talk about how it establishes public policy. But the easiest ones to understand are things such as uh, the relationship between encryption strength and privacy. We see that right now um, coming out in the Apple and FBI uh, discussions and debates. But so, so the, the, st- the strength of an encryption standard affects privacy. We see things like uh, domain name administration resolving many different conflicts over speech, 
because it is a namespace, uh, a domain name is a namespace, so it's also a, spe- uh, a uh, speech space. Should something like, um, you know, going back many years, .XXX be allowed on the internet? Now, should .Gay uh, move forward as a space on the internet? Who owns .Amazon.com? Should it be the countries with the Amazon rainforest within their borders, or should it be the company Amazon? So all of these questions in and of themselves are political, and what complicates this matter is that the way the infrastructure works does not comport neatly with national borders. So you have conflicts between a distributed system in which you might have a a web server in one country, you might have a domain name registered in another space, you might have the people working um, behind the scenes in another place, and then you might have the user in another country. So it raises uh, questions about how you bring the infrastructure together with public policy. Issues of jurisdiction are very intense here. We're chatting with Francesca Muziani, Derek Cogburn, and Laura Donardis, uh, co-editors of the book The Turn to Infrastructure and Internet Governance on KZSU-FM Stanford. Uh, for those of you that listen regularly, you know that KZSU is a non-profit, non-commercial radio station at Stanford University that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its diverse programming. You have a couple of ways to make a donation to KZSU. You can email our underwriting department at underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu or go to our web page and click on Donate to KZSU. Uh, regardless, I hope that you continue to listen to the show. So we're about halfway through our discussion here, and I want to uh, dig in on some of the more specific issues that you discuss in the book. And again, recognizing that there are many other contributors uh, to the book, uh, let's draw down on the chapters um, that you uh, had authored. Um, so, so you've just alluded to it, Lauren. Perhaps I'll come back to you, Francesca, before before Derek. I turn to you with, I think, it was a fascinating um, connection between the uh, Edward Snowden leaks and, and the issues we're talking about it here. Um, but but importantly, there is constantly this play, this interplay uh, in the governance issues on the internet between public entities like the United States government, for example, and private entities like Google, uh, and then what quasi public entities like ICANN, um, and this sharing of power. Uh, Francesca, how does the public-private distinction play out in this, as I'll talk about with Derek, this this multi-stakeholder, I don't know, mess um, of Internet governance today? Well, I think that what is uh, most interesting about uh, the state of Internet governance today is that uh, it is uh, about uh, so much more than uh, like a classic definition of uh, uh, of power relations, but it can be understood as a, uh, a set of uh, uh, processes that include innovation processes, uh, digitalization processes of uh, specific infrastructures, uh, actual regulation uh, enacted through uh, through laws. Uh, mobilization uh, by a certain number of collectives uh, around uh, specific issues. And finally, uh, what we examine uh, uh, more specifically in this book, uh, cooptation and circumvention. So uh, it is uh, the, the, public, the public-private uh, um, frontier, I would argue, is reconfigured uh, with all these, uh, this pro- as all these processes uh, uh, unfold. And uh, perhaps... Uh, like 
the classic definitions of uh, uh, of what uh, regulation and what power balances are uh, are put to the test uh, every day throughout this uh, this set of processes and uh, this this comes um, this come pardon me uh, here uh, the interest of uh, uh, focusing of uh, uh, on infrastructure as a lens uh, to uh, to addressing all of these processes including uh, attempts to uh, uh, protect or uh, invalid civil liberties, uh, enforce a uh, specific set of rights, uh, etc., uh, is uh, is of most uh, value because it focuses on uh, on the tools and uh, uh, allows to observe how around these tools uh, public and private actors uh, enact uh, alliances of different kinds. So, so Derek, let me let me turn to you, and I think that's a great jumping off point to to dig a bit into your chapter, uh, which refer which which discusses the Snowden leaks. So, you know, when we, you know, I think when you know to the extent people think about Edward Snowden's leaks, what you know what they think about is you know this is a story of the United States government secretly tapping into the network and violating the privacy uh, of inter- all internet users and violating various constitutional due process issues but but it's not really about internet infrastructure per se um so how is the snowden leak an an internet infrastructure and governance issue wow so this is um this is a huge question and if you'll allow me just to unpack it um a a little bit absolutely so um so i i start thinking about these governance issues from um, a a perspective that some people call the anarchy problematique. So you have a a, a world system that's made up of sovereign and equal nation states, and yet you have issues that are transnational in scope that need to be uh, governed. And as Laura said earlier, people sometimes take for granted the fact that it just works, that you you pick up your uh, smartphone or your tablet and you can reach somebody uh, in other parts of, of the world. So there are a number of issues that are transnational in scope. Uh, telecommunications is where I started focusing on these issues. But there are uh, there is pollution. There are there's human trafficking. There are all these issues that are transnational in scope that need to be governed in in some way. And so international regime theory is one of the ways that we understand how these issues can be governed. And uh, Krasner. Uh, talked about the idea of uh, a convergence of expectations of actors around principles, norms, and values in this particular area uh, of international affairs. And so when the calls for the privatization and internationalization of the Internet uh, started in in the the early uh, 90s and um, mid-90s, the world was starting to use the internet uh, and um, uh, the uh, access to the internet for uh, its own needs. So citizens around the world, countries around the world were starting to need access to the internet and even though it was born in the United States, there there were calls to privatize um, those functions and internationalize them. And ICANN was founded as uh, in response in some ways to uh, to those calls. But even at its founding in 1998, uh, many people, uh, or some people, many people thought that it didn't go far enough in uh, addressing this contestation and the need for a global body that would um, uh, would represent these uh, principles uh, and values. 
And so when the WISIS process started, uh, WISIS became a vehicle for debating uh, these issues and looking for uh, alternatives. Um, and so, um, you know, there were all these discussions about the UN taking over the Internet and the role that the ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, wanted to play in governing um, the Internet. In the period between the two WIS, uh, WISIS uh, summits, there was the creation of the WIGIG, uh, the Working Group on Internet Governance. And so you had these this vehicle for contestation of trying to have a more internationalized uh, environment. Uh, at the end of the WISIS, you had the creation of the Internet Governance Forum uh, as another vehicle for discussing these issues. And it was into this uh, environment that the Snowden revelations landed um, like a, like a, a, a bomb, uh, so to speak. Uh, talking about the, the role of the U.S. Uh, and uh, corporate complicity in surveillance uh, of the internet and so this gave additional fuel to this need um, by many people to see alternative systems of internet governance um, that were separate from u.s domination and control and so you had um, a number of the agencies and organizations that are part of the the uh, internet ecosystem, internet governance ecosystem, calling for alternative mechanisms. There was the Montevideo statement, uh, looking for alternatives following the Snowden uh, revelations. And perhaps most dramatically, um, Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff used her speech at the General Assembly to essentially accuse the U.S. of violating international law um, uh, once the Snowden revelations uh, happened. And she called for an alternative uh, uh, system of internet governance and offered Brazil as the host of a conference that became known as Net Mundial uh, to develop an alternative set of principles and values and governance mechan mechanisms for the internet. And that still wasn't enough to uh, engender the kind of changes that many people were calling for. However, when the European Union uh, weighed in uh, that the U.S. had to do something to restore international trust that had been uh, damaged by the Snowden revelations, um, the National Telecommunications and uh, Information Administration, NTIA, in the U.S. Department of Commerce agreed that it would turn over these critical IANA functions, the uh, um, um, Internet Addressing and Names Administration, that it would turn over these critical functions to some new global multi-stakeholder body if, it could be, if one could be created and would meet certain criteria. Um, and so that two-year process has just ended with the creation of uh, the recommendation, actually, for a new global multi-stakeholder body um, that, you know, meets in, in some ways this sort of uh, need that went back to the mid-90s of privatizing and internationalizing these processes. And it was uh, largely uh, kicked off by the Snowden revelations. So, unbelievably, we have about 10 minutes left, and this is what happens when I've got great people on the show, because there's so much more we can talk about. So I do want to uh, come back to you, uh, Francesca, uh, because in, in, light of, in light of what Derek just ran through, right, one could reasonably say, you know, look, why should the public accept private entities 
creating code and norms for the internet. Now, the pushback, of course, might be, well, you know, look what the government has done. Um, you know, the NSA was obviously not forthcoming in what it was up to. And to the extent that you've got private entities complicit in the NSA's activities, there's a governance problem. So, so what's your response to a pushback that says these private entities shouldn't be governing the internet? And, and by the way, just to be clear, let's throw ICANN into that mix. What's the response? Well, uh, my, I guess that the response would be, uh, well, they are de facto doing it <laughs> uh, in the sense that, uh, well, in uh, in many instances, it's uh, um, like the, once again, to come back to the classical uh, uh, <laughs> regulation systems, uh, they... Uh, they are not like the primary regulation system just because uh, they end up not being the most uh, uh, efficient or effective uh, or simply because uh, uh, one private actor that is holding a monopoly or quasi-monopoly uh, uh, hold on uh, a specific sector of the internet is simply imposing its uh, its way of, uh, of seeing uh, the world, or at, or at least a specific portion of it, uh, I, I would say that, for example, the uh, the right to be forgotten uh, controversy is a is a typical uh, and very enlightening uh, aspect uh, of uh, um, of how Google, because of its uh, uh, dominant position uh, in uh, uh, the search engine uh, sector, uh, at some point. Uh, decided uh, what the, uh, the the definition of the right to be forgotten uh, was supposed to be by saying, okay, from uh, this day we are going to impose uh, right to, uh, the right to be forgotten by implementing a specific kind of uh, infrastructure that includes uh, dereferencing and uh, and the like, following uh, a court a court decision. So in uh, in some cases, uh, privatization of internet governance happens. <laughs> Lauren, let me ask you this question because I know you you have to actually uh, jump off here. So let me ask you kind of uh, by way of a closing question to you, and I appreciate you coming on the show today. Um, are there any desirable governance alternatives, assuming that one were possible, right? As Francesca points out, look, this is what's happening. But if we're going to think about this um, from a reasonable alternative as opposed to the ideal situation, are there governance alternatives that are plausible? Yes, the first thing to say is that, you know, we all study global Internet governance. And the truth is that governments uh, themselves don't really have a great track record when it comes to governance of the Internet, in my opinion. Uh, we've got the Great Firewall of China and systems of censorship around the world. We have um, governments cutting off access to the Internet, various kinds of kill switch initiatives. In the United States, we have um, expansive surveillance disclosures that we've learned about. So uh, the, it's probably a good thing that when it comes to Internet governance, we have an ecosystem that involves a balance of power. Now, granted, the balance of power is consistently shifting. It's constantly shifting. But we have the private sector involved in some aspects. We have 
governments involved in other aspects. We have civil society involvement, not enough that that's starting to increase. So this balance of powers is usually called multi-stakeholder governance. Now, that being said, when you have an institution that is um, you know, primarily made up of the private sector, the big question, and I think this is what you're driving at, is what is the ideal procedural arrangement to mm -hmm. have legitimacy for a private entity making decisions that have such sweeping public interest implications for privacy and civil liberties and innovation policy. That's right. I would, I would, I would point to a, an example of what is working well. And I would say what's working well is the Internet Engineering Task Force. This is one of many standard-setting bodies. They um, establish the blueprints or protocols, if you will, uh, for how to exchange information in an interoperable way over the Internet. They have certain procedures, such as allowing anyone to participate. They have, um, coming back to intellectual property rights again, they have, um, you know, they generally have open standards in the sense that they're not uh, bogged down by a lot of uh, royalty-bearing standards. And then they resu the result is that they're open in implementation so that there are multiple competing uh, services that come out or products that come out of this. So having that openness in participation and the openness in that the sense that you could actually look at the document and read it, that provides a certain sense of accountability and transparency that uh, does not exist in other areas of internet governance. So it's a it's a much longer. Uh, we could spend a whole show just talking about um, the legitimacy issue and jurisdiction jurisdiction questions. But I would use that as an example of where you can find legitimacy for the highly privatized areas. Laura Denardis, uh, co-editor of the Turn Infrastructure Internet Governance. We're not done yet with the show, but I know you have to run. So I want to thank you uh, for being on the show today. Uh, and, of course, you know, I'm a fan of your work, and uh, I look forward to uh, chatting with you in the future. Thank you very much, Dave. Sure. Um, so, Derek, let me turn back to you. And, and we have about, like I said, about six, uh, five, six minutes left. Um, and and let me ask kind of this broad question before we get to, in closing, the suggested research agenda going forward. Uh, you, the political process being what it is, at least in the United States, particularly as we're recording on April 29, 2016, uh, we're in, we're in a, a primary season for the presidency, which you know most commentators uh, view as, as both insane um, and utterly unpredictable. Um, and, and it would seem like Internet governance, of course, not subject to the many vagaries of U.S. electoral politics, might be immune from that kind of uh, unpredictability and almost and scarily instability. Um, but you have referred to governance on the Internet as being fragmented. Um, and, and so my question is, and again, uh, you know, this is what I call the unfair portion of the show in the sense that now you have less time to answer mm -hmm. the questions. Um, how is that governance fragmented um and is that fragmentation a bad thing well um since we're we're rushing let me uh, address it still in two ways so yep. the, the, there are two ways to think about fragmentation one is potential fragmentation which are discussions that are happening around the world um, by some people in terms of creating alternative um internet structures which would have uh, far more limited reach. Um, there are some technological potential limitations, there are some economic uh, limitations, and there are some policy-oriented limitations that could fragment 
the Internet and reduce its uh, functionality uh, that we have now by this sort of globally ubiquitous uh, Internet. But in terms of the national debates and discussions, there's an issue that I think is, uh, is pretty important for us to just highlight, and it is what happens with the next steps with the recommendations from the IANA Transition uh, Committee. Um, so there have been hearings that have been held uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, and the question is, um, how does this uh, right, or how does this role that the U.S. has played historically get turned over? Can it be turned over to some new global function? And uh, Senator Cruz has been arguing that it it is it is not appropriate for the U.S. to turn over this resource, and that it's actually uh, he's been arguing that it's not possible. And I think, um, uh, luckily, I think the the, the broader consensus uh, is that um, that it is possible for the U.S. to turn these functions uh, over to this new body that, uh, according to all most um, uh, responses, does meet the requirements that uh, NTIA put forward. Francesca, let me uh, let me close with you on this. Um, at, at the end of the book, uh, there's a wonderful uh, coda, if you will, with suggestions for a research agenda on this issue. And given that there are a lot of academics and, and other uh, folks in the research community who listen to the show, what is that research agenda? Where should scholars uh, and others uh, be going uh, to build upon your work? Well, so... Um we um, at the end of this book uh, we uh, we point out to uh, to the need uh, of further uh, of further research uh, about the implications of uh, uh, this turn to infrastructure in internal governance in the sense that uh, and this is something we have not touched upon uh, yet uh, during this show um, this the like tampering with internet infrastructure comes at a cost, uh, so to speak. So it has implications for both the stability and the security uh, of the internet. Because if we take uh, bits and bytes of infrastructure and uh, we have them do stuff they were not meant to do in the beginning, uh, we uh, they may not be very much effective in doing this, but there is more. Uh, they might they might also uh, end up working uh, l less well for what they were m actually meant to to do. So uh, we uh, we call for further research in this regard. Then, of course, um, there is a f uh, further research is needed on uh, the privatization uh, of uh, of governance because uh, we uh, we always come up with um, uh, with new. Uh, well, wonderful case studies about, uh, of how it's, uh, uh, it's unfolding increasingly, uh, and also uh, what are the implications of this, uh, this technical-based uh, shift from, uh, uh, for human rights and for, uh, and for liberties. Uh, so um, I would also like to, uh, to say that there is um, a need for uh, assessing methodologies in internet governance, and perhaps uh, I, I will... Uh, uh, leave uh, Derek to say to say more about what our uh, our next project is. <laughs> yes, please, sure, Derek. Go sure. ahead. Yeah. It would be my pleasure. Um, so let me end with that, yeah. um, Francesca. Uh, let me say a little bit about um, a few areas that I see as important and that, that I'm uh, personally working on. 
so I'm, I'm very interested in uh, this question of power imbalance in the debates uh, around global governance and looking for ways to enhance voices uh, in those processes, diverse voices in those processes. So some of the work that I'm doing and the, 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 the monograph that I'm working on is looking at uh, transnational advocacy networks uh, around global governance and around internet governance in particular. And so um, how this whole process has stimulated networks of civil society organizations and multi-stakeholder actors who are looking for ways to enhance their ability through knowledge and access and networks to have an impact on this process. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. Uh, related to that um, is, is work that I'm doing on big data analytics and text mining. Um, something that Laura said earlier is that um, these processes that use uh, open systems that allow us to peek into the debates and the discussions that are going on become rich sources of data for us that are challenging for some scholars because they may not have the training and how to analyze large-scale text-based data sets. But we have tremendous text-based resources from RFCs that are coming out of um, the uh, IETF, uh, from transcripts of um, uh, IGF meetings, um, and uh, transcripts of um, broader debates and discussions, email archives. Um, uh, all of this becomes data for us if we understand uh, text mining uh, approaches. Um, and so um, we here at American University uh, have launched our Internet Governance Lab um, that uh, Laura, Nanette, and, uh, and I are co-directors of, and Francesca is an uh, affiliated faculty member of, and we have a, a desk for you, Francesca, whenever you come here to Washington. <laughs> um, but we want to, the four of us are working together on a new um, edited volume on research methodologies in internet governance and really trying to understand um, what are the range of um, uh, technical and social science methodologies that help shed light on different questions of internet governance and uh, what kind of answers can come out of using these different uh, methodologies. So this is our next collaborative co-authored um, project and one of the, the many things that the Internet Governance Lab will be involved in, um, particularly as part of our provost, uh, Scott Bass's uh, initiative for what he calls AU2030 and sort of looking towards the future and what are big interdisciplinary problems that uh, American University and our scholars and our, our broader network of collaborators should be focused on, Dave. Francesca Muziani, Derek Cogburn, uh, previously joining us, Laura Denardis. Uh, the co-editors, along with Nanette Levinson, of The Turn to Infrastructure and Internet Governance. Uh, thank you for being on the show today. This book is, a, 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 I think, a really important contribution to an underexplored and critical area in how we understand communication technology broadly. Uh, I look forward to chatting with you in the future. Uh, best of luck as you engage in these new and exciting projects, and thank you for joining us today on Hearsay Culture. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, Dave. So rounding out this quarter and coming up uh, next week will be Professor Paul Ringel of High Point University, author of Commercializing Childhood. Uh, Professor Neil Natano will follow of UCLA Law, author of From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print. And rounding out this quarter, Professor Missy Cummings of Duke University's Department of Mechanical Engineering and Material Science and Director of Duke's Humans and Autonomy Lab on Autonomous Automobiles. Um, as always, you have a 
number of ways to hear, listen to Hearsay Culture. You can listen 2 p.m. Pacific time at kzsulive.stanford.edu on Fridays. You can also get the show via podcast by going to the Center for Internet and Society's webpage or to the iTunes engine for CIS or to hearsayculture.com where you can get all the previous 250-odd shows. As always, I welcome your comments, suggestions, and feedback on the contact form or at Dave at hearsayculture.com. Thank you for joining me today on the show. Please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming, and have a great day.